Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lou Bell, the show's producer. Tonight's tale is so frightening, you might simply burst from fear. Please enjoy a blaze. He was a drunk. If you ask me, that's all the explanation that's needed. But for some, that wasn't enough. For some, the mystery surrounding Jim's death was beyond explanation. It was as if they were sure that nothing about it was normal. It was the opposite of Occam's razor. The official cause of death, according to the autopsy report, was smoke inhalation. I believe they say this because the thought of a loved one burning to death is just too much to bear. They tell you that they passed out from the lack of oxygen long before the flesh began to blister and their organs broiled behind their ribcage. It's definitely a more peaceful way to go, suffocating to death, than burning to death. That's what they tell people to soften the blow after they lose a person they love very much to something so horrific. This, of course, was wasted on me. I honestly can't say I love the man, or at least I haven't for a very long time. Smoke inhalation also, by the way, explains why victims are sometimes found inches away from an unlocked door or curled up beneath a first floor window. I guess it's just unimaginable that a person, upon finding themselves engulfed in flames, would just stay put. That being said, it's kind of crazy how quickly you forget to stop, drop, and roll the moment your lashes ash into your eyeballs. Most people run in search of a miraculous body of water they hope would appear like an oasis. Others flail in place, hoping to dance the fire free, begging for help. But some, they accept the flames and the fate before them. They drop to their knees and let the fire engulf them with little more than a whimper. It's unclear what makes these people give up. It could be the realization that the pain wouldn't stop, even if the fire was extinguished. They knew it could last forever. Their scarred flesh and singed nerves would create a perpetual hell that no skin graft or morphine drip could really ever alleviate. It could be that. Or it could just be that they're too messed up on drugs or alcohol to realize what's happening. This last scenario, this is probably what happened to Jim, my father. I say this because despite burning alive in his home, unnoticed for days until he failed to call in for work, the fire didn't spread beyond the old recliner that he was rooted in. I was told that beyond some scorching to the chair and a dark brown circle of soot on the ceiling directly above his corpse, there was no other sign of fire. In fact, he remained intact from the knees down. The hair on his calves wasn't even singed, and his feet were still firmly planted, untouched by the flames, inside his slippers. The fire seemed to start somewhere around his belly before crawling up his chest, so the official theory was that he passed out and let a cigarette fall from his mouth, landing on his stained cotton work shirt. I can't say I know much about him, but two things about him left an indelible mark on me from my childhood. The incessant smell of smoke that reeked from him from chain smoking, and that he drunk himself into a stupor nearly every day until he couldn't lift another drink to his mouth. Needless to say, I found their explanation for his death entirely reasonable. 
Not so much that he died because of smoke inhalation, because let's be honest, if you are the source of the fire and you're up in flames, the smoke in your lungs is the least of your concerns. There was no question in my mind that his violent death was a direct result of his careless habits and a booze-soaked body. It wasn't until I was taken aside by Ernie, my father's probate lawyer, that I even heard of any other explanation. As an officer cleared my dad's house for our entry, Ernie did his best to prepare me. You know, uh, I feel like your dad had a lot of flaws, but call him Jim, I interjected. Right. Jim had a lot of flaws, but he was working on himself. I laughed. <laughs> he was always working on himself. There was a lot to work on. Ernie loosened his tie and squinted up at the sun. I don't think he would just let himself go out like that. I saw that man come back from the brink of death just out of sheer stubbornness. I just can't see a little cigarette ash being the thing to end him. Well, technically they say it was the smoke that killed him. He always said that was going to be what took him out. Granted, it just wasn't the smoke that he expected, I replied. I don't think it was. Have you seen the photos? Ernie asked as the officer stepped outside to wave us in. Yeah, I don't think it was the smoke either, I admitted but he still died from a cigarette. Ernie began to lead the way and then slowed and turned back to me. He lowered his voice to almost a whisper. No, I mean, have you heard of spontaneous human combustion? I tried not to roll my eyes. Today already felt weird enough. I was hot and uncomfortable in the summer sun and I wasn't about to open up a discussion on paranormal conspiracy theories. Instead, I just shrugged and led the way inside. Walking up the sidewalk of my childhood home and climbing the shallow cement steps to the front door filled me with what I can only describe as the opposite of nostalgia. My memories here were not good ones. My childhood here was not a good one. Even before my mother left, this house was steeped in misery. Never-ending arguments played out every night just beyond my bedroom door. The mornings, however, well, they were quiet because my father rarely woke up before noon. I came to cherish the mornings. My mother would make breakfast for the two of us. No other pancakes have ever come close to tasting as good as the one she made on those days. Sometimes she would tell me stories of how they met and how they used to be. She was in college and he was a regular at her college bar. She fell in love with his carefree attitude and he claimed to love how smart and assertive she was. But over time, he grew tired of taking orders and she grew tired of taking care of him. Their slow descent into dysfunction suddenly accelerated into a freefall with my own first sip of alcohol. I was nine. It was at a family barbecue. Jim had just broken his foot by dropping a large piece of luggage on it while at work. I remember that he joked that he did it on purpose to spend more time at home with us. Because he was stuck in his seat, the party seemed to revolve around him. While my mother manned the grill, my father set out shots for the men. They all cheered and threw back the liquor before letting out a primal howl in unison. It was the tribal energy that drew me to them. The lime, the salt, the lick. It was more of a ritual than an activity. There was a purpose to it. My father must have noticed my gaze, my eyes locked on the empty glass. You want to try it, he asked. Some of the other men clearly knew better and excused themselves. At first, I didn't nod and I didn't say yes. I didn't want to sound too eager. Instead, I kept my eyes locked on the glass as my father picked it up to refill the shallow cylinder. It's tequila from Mexico, he said, holding it out for me to inspect. You're not going to like it, though. 
Without thinking, I reached out for the glass. More men left the circle and returned to their wives, avoiding incrimination. As I raised the glass to my lips, the crowd parted, making way for my mother as she charged across the lawn, spatula in hand. Jim, she screamed, what on earth are you doing? I took the shot before she could get to me. The hot vapors burned my mouth and sinuses. The fermented flavor of unbarreled tequila coated my tongue and my throat. It burned like a white-hot fire, consuming me from the inside out. As I felt it settle into my belly and burn with a churning acid inside, an image from a late-night news program popped into my brain. Wedged between my parents, I watched as an oil fire consumed a rig off the California coast. Thick black puddles of flaming oil floated on the waves in what I had thought was always an impossible scenario. Even an entire ocean of water was not enough to extinguish the fire. This image is exactly what I pictured happening inside me as my mother snatched the empty shot glass from my hand. What are you thinking? She asked, unsure of which one of us to direct her anger at. My father ignored her. How to taste? Really gross. I lied. He knew. It was one of those defining moments in your life that you can pinpoint where everything changed. That shot glass of cheap tequila was the catalyst to my misery. It was not only when my parents' relationship started to unravel, but also it was the start of my own struggle with alcoholism. Most people have a lifetime of if-only moments. I have just that one. If only he hadn't given me the tequila. I guess I should note that my relationship with him wasn't always strained. Before that barbecue, we were already close. But afterwards, we united beneath the disapproving dominion of my mother. While she nagged my father to do more around the house before lecturing me to finish my homework, my father and I would exchange knowing glances. This was our signal. Instead of doing as we were told, we would instead sneak out to the garage to sneak beer from the old refrigerator. At first, it was just a few sips or sharing a can. But before long, we each drank our own. Sometimes my mother would catch us, which would lead to days-long arguments with my dad and hours-long lectures to me about my future. I hated her for it, and I felt a sense of camaraderie with my father. She noticed this and eventually turned a blind eye to avoid total resentment. I began to resent her for being so mean to my father and for being so strict with me. Puberty had also come, and along with it, perpetual hormonal outbursts that led to a frozen emotional distance. Around her, I became a terror. I became my father. One morning after my father went on a particularly violent bender, I went out to the kitchen expecting pancakes and bacon and a reprieve. Instead, I found a note. My mother had gone to live with her sister for a little while. This little while turned into a few months. Those few months became years. She tried to stay connected with me, but the more I was around my father, the more I became what she hated. In turn, I told her that it was her that I hated. The longer she stayed away, the more I resented her for leaving. She attempted a few times to rescue me, but I was stubborn and angry and fought her at every turn. Eventually, she gave up. She found someone else and started a new family, leaving us behind for good. It was no surprise that without her, my father and I quickly turned our anger at each other. I left him when I went to college. I stayed gone even when I dropped out. I never stopped by to see him because all I needed to do was look in the mirror. Eventually, I got sick of my own shit. 
I tried to get my life back together. I went back to school. I began a healthy relationship with a supporting, loving man, and I quit drinking. With my own life back on track, I made time to reconnect and rebuild the relationship with my father. I told him that I wanted to reconnect with my mom as well. He invited me over to chat and hopefully move past all the pain, but old habits die hard. He sucked me back into his hell, and one cigarette turned into a beer, which slipped into one handle of vodka. One weekend with him dragged me back to my knees. I went back to school and I graduated, but only barely. The man I loved was still in love with me, but I had become a different person after that weekend with my father. Our relationship didn't survive. It couldn't. And my plan to reach out to my mother had fizzled out before it could even be formed. One weekend with him, and I found myself completely alone in the world again. It took years to crawl back out of that hole, but I finally did it. I finally got sober and in recovery, and this time it stuck. I tried to help him. I told him about the program that saved me, but he refused to change. I would try to dig him out of his addiction, and he would try to pull me down with him. One of the last times I saw him, I caught him trying to playfully spike my lemonade with the same crappy tequila that started this whole mess. That was the last straw. I hated him more than I had ever hated anyone. I cut off ties. I changed my number and moved out of the state. My relationship with my mother was tepid, but I still told her where I was headed and I made her promise to never tell Jim where I had gone. As far as I know, she kept that promise. And today was the first time I'd returned to this house since I walked away from him for good. My entire life, my childhood home had been the epicenter for my darkest moments. So it came as no surprise that what brought me back was another dark moment. My father's death by violent immolation. Ernie stopped at the threshold of the house. Spontaneous combustion would make sense, you know. One of the officers even brought it up. You never heard of it, he asked. I stood still in the center of the entryway, not wanting to go in. Ernie was starting to annoy me. I pulled at my collar. The house had been closed to air and light for days, just baking in the summer sun. I hated feeling hot, and Ernie wasn't helping. As my eyes adjusted to the dark, I looked at Ernie. I've heard of spontaneous human combustion, but this is not that. What happened here is clear and frankly, exactly as I figured he'd go out. The officer standing inside the house, a large man with a thick mustache and truly kind eyes, reached for his notebook. Ma'am, do you have a service planned for uh, this? I don't know, I guess I should plan something. Even assholes deserve a funeral, right? The officer looked up from his notebook, taken aback. Oh, I, I meant cleaning service for the, for the bio he trailed off with insinuation. I shook my head. No, I didn't. I hadn't even thought about it. He ripped off a piece of paper from his pad and handed it to me. My sister-in-law runs a service, licensed and everything. Bio is their specialty. I took the number and thanked him. The officer headed out of the house and Ernie hovered by the door. It seemed like we were both waiting for something. I was waiting for him to lead the way in, and he was waiting to give me the keys. Uh, okay then, here you go, he said with a nervous laugh. You're not going to come in, I asked. He shook his head. The smell. He rubbed his chest and shook his head again. Don't you need to show me around and sign stuff? 
Nope, that's all taken care of. They release the scene. You have the keys. It's all yours. He backed his way down the steps and paused at the walkway. Ernie then scrunched up his face again and glanced up at the sun. It was clear he wanted to say something else, but was fighting the urge. I took a deep breath and smelled the faint odor of burned wood. The moment I reached out to the front door to close it, Ernie found the courage to speak. Be careful in there, he said. I turned back to him. Excuse me? Well, I mean, spontaneous combustion or not, just be careful. You know, maybe it was fumes or something. Don't use a lighter or anything. Ernie, are you sure you're a lawyer? This was a case of a cigarette falling onto a sad, booze-soaked man, and I don't smoke. Anyway, I'll be out of here within the hour. I'm pretty sure I'm safe, but thanks for your concern, I said, and closed the door on him. The fire that killed Jim had not erased the familiar scent of cigarettes from decades of smoking inside. A sticky tar residue still clung to the walls, giving everything a slight amber tint. It's remarkable how a scent, pleasant or otherwise, can trigger a flood of memories. Twenty years later, and the same maple table sat just beyond the front door. My father's keys were rusting just to the left of the key bowl my mother had bought at a flea market. She had told me if he has one place to put them, he'll be less likely to lose them. The thought of him hanging on to this little piece of our old family, this tiny gift from the woman who left him, filled me with sadness. For a moment, my anger slipped into pity. A smile crept across my face as I remembered that in an act of defiance, he always refused to actually use the bowl. But without fail, he would place his keys in the same spot every day, right next to the bowl. I guess the bowl worked, just not as mom had planned it to. Deprived of keys, the bowl now held a laminated library card. That was odd. I had never seen the man read a book in my entire life. He was more of a television and football kind of guy. I picked it up to verify that it belonged to him. It did. Beneath the card was a small foil pack with perforated sections that you'd see on gum or cold medicine. I picked it up to take a closer look. To my surprise, it was nicotine gum. More than half of the little squares had been torn and used. Maybe he was trying to quit after all, which made the cause of death even more tragic. In true addict fashion, it was his one more time that did him in. As I moved past the entry into the kitchen, the odd smell of rendered fat, melted plastic upholstery, and charred paint permeated everything. It almost smelled like something was on fire now in the present. Just beyond the kitchen was the living room, the place where they found him, the room where my father had burned to death. I moved through the dining room towards the bedroom hallway. I wasn't ready for the living room, not yet, but curiosity carried me towards my old room. It was the first door on the left. The stickers that covered it were now yellow and curled at the edges. After all these years, he never bothered to remove them. I picked at the corner of a small purple unicorn and pulled. The adhesive peeled off the paper and left a discolored spot of dry yellow goo in its place. I picked at the glue and mentally prepared myself for disappointment. What I had expected to be a storage room full of collected junk and dead appliances was instead surprisingly clean. This was definitely not how I left it on my last destructive visit. The carpet had those familiar triangle lines left by a vacuum. My old bed was made and the pillows were fluffed. It was odd to see my room in this shape. I wondered for a moment who he had cleaned it for. 
What guest was he expecting to sleep in the small twin bed of his estranged daughter? He didn't even bother to change out the unicorn sheets. I was so distracted by the state of the room that I nearly missed a small pile of presents stacked neatly against one wall, each of them wrapped in different patterns of Christmas paper. They had been placed there with care at the end of the only worn path through the otherwise pristinely vacuumed room. Suddenly it clicked. These must be for someone else. Maybe he had started over like my mother and another little girl had moved in to fill my space. Why else would he keep these here? Why else would he clean the room? I started to feel a warmth in my belly, but not like the comforting feeling of hot chocolate or a badly needed hug. The ball of heat just behind my belly button grew warmer as I stomped through the neatly vacuumed lines to pick up one of the boxes. I turned over the small card. The heat in my stomach spread to my face. This gift and every other one was addressed to me, and each one had the year written next to his signature. There were 14 in total. The first, a small box with wrinkled paper and a stick-on bow was dated two years after the last time we spoke. With each passing year, each gift was wrapped slightly better than the last. The most recent one sat near the edge of the bed, wrapped with clean, creaseless silver paper. A long ribbon of glittery silver was tied neatly into a bow at the top. This gift was from last year. It took me a long time to justify opening them. Part of me didn't want to give him the satisfaction of knowing that I finally opened the gifts that he never bothered to mail. The other part reminded me that this was the reason that I was there. The house and everything in it was now my responsibility, and it was my burden to figure out what to do with it all. I was on the hook for his burial costs, and selling this house with its broken contents was the only way I could afford it. Everything was mine to tear open, especially these old gifts. I started with the oldest box. The brittle paper crumbled in my hands to reveal an old shoebox inside. In the box was wadded up paper towels and an object the size of an orange, all wrapped up. I peeled away the old paper towels to reveal a small wooden horse, crudely carved from a soft piece of wood. I placed it in the palm of my hand and held it up to get a better look. I noticed that a small horn had broken off its head and then was glued back on with yellow-brown wood glue. It was a unicorn, my favorite animal as a child. I was always drawn to the idea of a creature that would be completely ordinary if not for one small thing that made it magical, its horn. Each gift contained a similar handcrafted object. The older ones seemed to be vague attempts at things I used to enjoy but no longer thought about. There was a teddy bear, a mermaid, an attempt at a princess with a flowing gown, and all sorts of other things that might have been of interest to a young girl. With each year, the details became more defined and the artistry improved, but the subject matter seemed stuck in my preteen interests. It then occurred to me that after all those years, the only interest I ever actually shared with him was drinking, and all at once I felt that first shot of tequila warming my belly again. The more I thought about how little he truly knew me, the hotter it got. I peeled off my shirt and sat on the floor in my white tank top as waves of heat passed through me. I could feel the sweat beating on my forehead. Was I having a panic attack? I pried open the one small window in the room and the sorrow that burned deep in my belly seemed to cool. For a brief moment, I wondered about what my father would have carved if he had really taken the time to get to know me not as a little girl, 
but as the broken woman that I grew into. A sharp pain stabbed through my stomach like a red-hot poker. I cleared my mind and moved on. I rummaged through the spare room that he had turned into a makeshift office. It was a clutter of open files, sales receipts, and other mundane artifacts of a business or career that I struggled to decipher. The room was devoid of any real substance or items of worth, so I didn't spend a whole lot of time digging through it. By the time I reached his bedroom, the pain in my belly had faded. His bedroom was frozen in time, exactly as it was when my mom decorated it decades before. Uninspiring farm prints hung on the wall on either side of a dusty bouquet of fake wheat held together by a checkered red and white ribbon. The bouquet had seen better days. Even though the plastic plants couldn't rot, the whole display still managed to decay on the wall, crumbled with time and coated in dust. I felt pity for him, living in the shadow of her past. How did this not remind him of what he had lost? How could he sleep knowing that this faux country decoration was the only thing she left him? Other than me, of course. His dresser stood to one side, worn down with use. The deep oak stain had faded to a softer, warmer shade. His wallet sat folded next to his tray of cufflinks and tie clips that I had never seen him wear. And with everything else seemingly preserved in time, I was surprised to see a new flat screen TV on the far end of his dresser. His old tube TV still haunted the room though. He used to turn the big heavy set toward the bed every night. Then in the morning, he would turn it back to the chair where he put his socks on, and then again to the bed at night. This routine dug deep scratches into the wood where the new TV now stood. Even the dented coffee can he used to collect change seemed to carve out its home on the worn wood. Long ago, he had cut a small slit into the can's rubber lid, turning it into a shoddy homemade piggy bank. I cracked the seal and peeled back the lid to see what he had saved. There was no change, no crumpled bills. Instead, I found the last thing I could have ever imagined. The can was filled halfway to the top with a rainbow of shiny plastic coins. AA sobriety chips. Some were the same as others, meaning he had reached a milestone only to start all over again. There were more red chips than any other color. But when I shook the can, I heard the shuffle of metallic coins buried inside. Sure enough, he had managed to collect chips that signified years, even a decade, of sobriety. Anger welled up inside of me like a struck match held to tinder. I tried for so many years to get him help and he fought me at every attempt. The last time we were together, he belittled my own sobriety. His words still echoed in my mind. What are you, a quitter? Instead of being happy that he had managed to finally get better, I felt nothing but resentment for him fighting me for so long. My anger gave way to a deep dejection. All I could think about were the years that we all lost because of his stubbornness. I began to cry. I was suddenly snapped out of my misery by the harsh beep of the hallway fire alarm. I looked up to see that he had removed the one from his bedroom, but the one in the hall just outside screamed in warning. Frantic, I looked for any sign of smoke. I opened every door to every room and found that he had removed all the other smoke alarms. But that single alarm kept beeping and yet I found no smoke. I ran through the dining room and back into the kitchen. Behind me, the beeping stopped as abruptly as it had started. The kitchen, like every other room, was devoid of smoke, heat, or any sign of fire. There was only one room left to check. 
The living room archway stood like a portal to his demise. As I stepped over the threshold onto the green shag carpet, an anxious warmth washed over me, pulsing with the beat of my heart. The room was dark, devoid of any natural sunlight. The dust-covered blinds held back any indirect sun that was foolish enough to attempt entry. The sweet, acrid smell that had spread throughout the house now hit me with an unavoidable stench. Rendered fat, burnt hair, and melted plastic gave off an acidic odor. I steadied myself and reached out for the lamp switch. With a click of the light, my legs went weak and my knees buckled. I gripped the wall and caught myself on the edge of my grandmother's curio cabinet. My eyes were locked on the horror before me. Sitting beside the empty fireplace was the charred remains of the recliner where my father was set ablaze. My throat went dry. My breath was hot. I was overcome with a raw, hacking cough. I struggled to breathe. It became almost impossible to draw in oxygen between each raspy croak, and with each labored gasp, I felt hot blood pounding through my head. My anxiety had turned into panic, and I felt scorching dread pulling at the pit of my stomach. For a moment, death seemed not only possible but imminent. The already dark room seemed to close in around me, blanketing me in a warm black void. My final thought before I passed out was that maybe Ernie was right after all. Maybe there were undetectable fumes that I'd been inhaling for the past hour. When I came to, I was wet with sweat and suffering an unquenchable thirst. The stench of burnt flesh and smoke choked me. It took me a few seconds to realize that I'd passed out in the very chair where he had died. I jumped up horrified. The smell of char now came from me, from my hair, from my clothes. I stared at the recliner and I understood now why Ernie wasn't buying the official autopsy report. Sure enough, the only damage to the chair was confined to an area the size of a human being, the size of my father. The rest of it stood intact. The fire had burned a deep pit into the worn synthetic fabric that covered the chair. The bottom cushion had a charred hole right in the center that seemed to crawl up the back of the recliner as if the flames had shot up the chair right into the ceiling. But it was odd that the armrests and base were only slightly singed. The heat appeared to be concentrated in one spot, where the back met the seat. The fire had been so intense that it crumbled his spine, but left the hair on his knuckles untouched. As I gawked at the impossible, my foot hit something on the floor. While the coroner had removed his remains, they left everything else for me to clean up, including the small hunk of what looked like wood. I bent down to grab it. Picking it up, I realized what it was. An unfinished carving. Another gift to add to the others that would be wrapped and addressed to me but never sent. Christmas was still many months away, but it was clear that he was taking his time with it. Much like everything else in the room, it was untouched by flame. Perfect and clean, but unfinished. The details were impressive. He had carved small grooves into the back, like tufts of fur on the back of an animal, on the back of a dog, on the back of my dog. This little carving, emerging from a block of black walnut, was Milo. How could he know what the dog that he never met looked like? I found the answer on the mantel place. It was a full-color printout of a social media post that I had made of Milo. Having searched the whole house now, I knew that he didn't own a computer, let alone a printer that could produce this. 
I remembered the library card and realized he must have printed the photo there. I'd never known the man to put in the effort to do anything outside of his comfort zone, so knowing the obstacles he overcame to do this made my stomach sink with regret. For the first time in my life, it felt like he was actually trying to connect with me in his own disconnected way. I folded the printed photo in half only to realize that he had written on the back. The note read, Katie, Merry Christmas. I hope you're well. When you open this, I hope it brings you joy. Your dog Milo is cute. I'm sorry I never let you get a dog when you were little. I love dogs. I always told myself it was because I would end up taking care of it and picking up the poop. This was unfair. I was being selfish and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for a lot of things. Anyways, it looks like you're doing well. I'm doing well too. If you're reading this, it means you already know that. Hopefully, this is just the first step of many leading us back into each other's lives. On the other side of this note is the photo that I used to create the carving so you can compare. It's coming along nicely and I'm already very proud of it. Making stuff with my hands keeps me going. A buddy of mine, my sponsor, actually told me it isn't about distractions, it's about focus. You gotta focus on the good stuff because it just illuminates all the other positive things you got going on. He said if sorrow is the kindling and grief is the spark, depression is the only fire that still keeps you in the dark. I don't know if he wrote that or not, but I like it and I wanted to share it with you. Okay, now I'm rambling. I hope real Milo likes this little wood Milo. Thank you for opening this. It means a lot to me. Love, Dad. The tears came with anguish. My heart ached at the thought of him writing this note with nothing but love and a hope that it would be reciprocated. My throat again went dry and my eyes burned. I stumbled back into the kitchen, gasping for air and pushed my way through to the front door and stepped out into the hot sunlight. Beads of sweat trickled down my face as I dug into my pocket for my phone. I pulled it out and dialed my mother. Before she could even say hi, I asked, Hey, did dad ever ask for my address? Uh, every year. Katie, is everything all right? Every year since when? I mean, since a while, I guess. Years now. I always told him the same thing. I told him you weren't ready just yet, and if you wanted to talk, you would let him know. Are you over there right now, sweetie? You shouldn't be doing that alone. When was that? The last time? She paused for a long while. Just before... She trailed off. You don't think he meant to? No. I hung up before she could say anything else. The guilt over shutting him out weighed down my heart, pulling it past my lungs and into my belly where it burned in the acid within. He had tried to make things right. He had gotten his life back together. He had waited for me to let him back in, but I never did. The smoldering regret I felt must have been the same he felt over pushing me away to begin with. We were two broken humans trying to make amends with our past. For a moment, I was angry he didn't just tell me that he had turned his life around. I was angry at my mother for not telling me that he was trying to reconnect with me. And then I was angry at myself for blaming them. I could feel the sadness inside of me forming into a white hot heat deep in my gut. It radiated out through my nerves, burning every inch. It felt as if my very soul were ablaze in despair. Overcome with grief, I exhaled, and the last thing I saw was a thick cloud of black smoke before me, billowing out of my mouth.
Today's story is based on the bizarre death of Michael Faherty, the first officially reported case of spontaneous human combustion ever in Ireland. The story first appeared in a September 2011 article published on BBC.com. On December 22, 2010, Mr. Faherty was found in his home badly burned but without any apparent external source of ignition. The fire had been confined to the sitting room. The only damage was confined to the body, which was totally burnt, the ceiling above him and the floor underneath him, but nothing else was touched by the flame. While this is only the most recent case of spontaneous human combustion on record, it is certainly not the first. The term was mentioned first all the way back in 1746 by Paul Rowley in an article published in Philosophical Transactions, describing it as, quote, a process in which a human body allegedly catches fire as a result of heat generated by internal chemical activity, but without evidence of an external source of ignition. When Charles Dickens first published his novel Bleak House in 1852, he was accused of legitimizing superstitious nonsense when he wrote of the death of an alcoholic rag and bottle merchant named Crook by describing in detail his death by spontaneous human combustion. When Dickens was met with backlash over the outlandish subject of Crook's death, he responded by saying that he had taken great pains to research the subject and knew of about 30 cases, one of which dated back to 1731. Dickens had read Rowley's article on spontaneous human combustion about Italian noblewoman Cornelia Zangari Bandi, who had been described as, quote, reduced to a pile of ashes, although her lower legs below the knee three fingers and the front of her skull were relatively intact. The bed and the rest of the furniture had not been affected by the fire, but were covered by a greasy and smelly layer. Even beyond Dickens, spontaneous human combustion has managed to ingrain itself in our pop culture. Herman Melville's novel, Red Burn, Rob Reiner's classic film, This is Spinal Tap, and Vince Gilligan's episode of The X-Files titled Soft Light are just a few examples of literary explorations of the ghastly phenomenon. Theories on the possible causes range from the fantastical, such as poltergeist, to the mundane, a cigarette left to smolder on a cotton shirt. The latter explanation works in conjunction with something called the wick effect, the destruction of the human body by fire when the clothing of the victim soaks up melted fat and acts like the wick of a candle. Skeptics will usually point to this as the true explanation for spontaneous human combustion. Regardless of the numerous theories and possible answers, coroner Dr. Sheeran McLaughlin said about Mr. Faherty, Quote, this fire was thoroughly investigated and I'm left with the conclusion that this fits into the category of spontaneous human combustion, for which there is no adequate explanation. Tonight's tale was written by J. Hunter Richardson. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhary and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lubell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast.